Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. Before I begin, I wanted to remind everyone that all of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Pics and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. Michael Runce's 1997 book, The Howls of August, he recounted a series of stories of his encounters with Algonquin Park wolves during his 25 years working as a park naturalist. As I begin this last episode, I wanted to share with you his book's closing thoughts. Wolves are quintessential components of the wilderness psyche, and our search for them is as much a spiritual adventure as it is a physical endeavor. No matter how fleeting the encounter, any meeting with a wolf leaves us with much more than a lasting memory. When we walk where their paws have tread, we enter a world from our past. When we hear their howls, we hear the heartbeat of the wilderness. And when we look into a wolf's eyes, we see the unfettered spirit of all that is wild. So in my last five Algonquin Defining Moments episodes, I've been focusing on providing all of you with a recap of much of the groundbreaking and myth-busting research on wolves in Algonquin that has taken place over the last 60 years. In my last episode, I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. John Benson, now at the University of Nebraska, who conducted extensive Algonquin Park research from 2007 to 2011. In this episode, I'm really excited that I've been able to arm-twist Dr. John Thaberge and his partner in work and life, Mary Thaberge, in joining me to talk about their sense of where things are these days in regards to the plight of wolves. Welcome to Algonquin Defining Moments. I'm so happy that you were able to join me today. Happy to. Thank you very much for inviting us. How did you both get first get interested in wolves? Well, I, I, it was uh, circumstances for me when I was in high school and I, I uh, applied for a job with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, now Ministry of Natural Resources, Ministry of Lands and Forests it was. Yeah, as a, as a high school kid and I was accepted and assigned to Doug Pimlock, the wolf research biologist. So that's, uh, that's how we got into it. Well, with me, I, I wasn't exposed to a a lot of, uh, well, I was exposed to wilderness. It was a different type of wilderness. It was an African wilderness. And uh, my family then moved to um, to England and I hadn't been exposed to camping in the wilds of Canada. So when I met John, he was working for Doug Pimlock. And uh, when we got married in, in 63, he said, well, we're going to go camping a month after we were into our marriage. And I said, okay, I'm going to take a tent and sleeping bags. And he says, oh, no, no, we'll just take our sleeping bags. And they were old ones that he and his brother Tom had used for years. They were felt sleeping bags. 
And I said, well, what do we do if it rains? And he said, well, we'll do what Lawrence and I did. We'll sleep under the canoe. And um, so, well, it did rain and sleeping bags soaking wet. And during the, and, you know, I was almost ready to have my walking papers then, you know, <laughs> I am I going to pile up with us for how many years? Well, um, 59 years later, I'm still here. I give it all to the wolves at uh, Fort Blake. Um, we were sleeping and uh, the wolves started howling. We were still asleep when the, the howls kind of walked down on us and, uh, opened my eyes and there was fog all around, sleeping bag was soaking wet, but we realized that the wolves were howling and we both jumped out of our sleeping bags and started down towards the canoe. We slipped the canoe into the water and uh, paddled out into the mist. And lo and behold, we came up to a, a rock. The rock was highlighted by the sun that was just kind of rising onto it. And um, John, we waited for a while and uh, he howled, and the howl was just ear-splitting, you know, it just cut right through the, the wilderness. And um, we waited and waited, and suddenly uh, we heard this rustling. So we, here we were at the base of a rock that was jutting out in the lake. And we looked up, and out came three wolves. This was my first experience of camping in Algonquin Park in the mountain. Wow. The first night, first day that we were out there, and uh, the three wolves looked down at us. They were completely perplexed. They were expecting to find other wolves, and we were completely perplexed, never expecting them to be 15 feet away from us up on this rock. They'd, uh, with one jump, we would be five in the canoe. We looked at them, and they looked back at us, and then I guess that moment of uh, curiosity was broken with them, and they, they dashed off. But wow. that was my time, and um, uh, I haven't looked back. Wow. Well, it's embarrassing because, you know, as I, I think I shared, I, I spent every summer of my life, uh, except for a couple, up at, in Algonquin. And I've heard them, of course, but I've never actually seen one. So you'll have to forgive me. I'm just curious as to what's it actually like to touch them and to get so close to them? and and actually look them in the eye. I mean, that that you that must have been just profound experiences. Well, it was, but the trapping was, I guess, emotionally unpleasant. Um, it's a humbling experience. It, it was, uh, we needed to do the radio collaring and trap them. We had modified lake hole traps, padded jaws, and a spacer so they wouldn't completely close. But we would have never found out that there was a, a wolf migration out of the park and this bizarre amount of killing was taking place had we not radio collared them. So it was elation that because it's hard work to never catch even one when we'd get one. But then to see a wolf cowering in a trap that you set was uh, unpleasant. Uh, so it was an evil necessity to do that. The wolves. Uh, uh, never were aggressive in traps. They always were fearful. And so fearful that uh, we could have radio collared them without even uh, drugging them. Some biologists do that. We didn't because it's too stressful on the animal. You could have sat on the wolf, one of us, and the other one put the collar on. They wouldn't go at you or anything like that. Hmm. But, uh, but, but we didn't do that. So it was, it was Mary said, humbling to have in that situation, but unpleasant. I mean, we'd, we'd rather have the, the wolves on a rock bluff that Mary was describing, watching them in a canoe, than um, at our feet in a humble way like that. Hmm. Was there ever any time where you were afraid? Actually, there wasn't. Um, John has had an experience. We had a lengthy trip into Kiwi Lake. We had our youngest daughter with us. She was 15, and we were going to be putting traps into the area to see if we could get other um, wolves radio collared in, in the Nama Pack. And so I, I didn't accompany them, but um, they went out, and they had uh, an interesting experience. It was, I think, the only time we'd ever been concerned about a wolf. Do you want to embellish on that Yeah, one? well, we were just um, checking 
for traps that we had plugged in with great effort. And we're leaning down and suddenly at point blank range, we had this wolf begin barking at us. And, you know, we turn on the receiver and yes, it was the normal wolf. And it, it ran back and forth short distances just above our heads. And we realized inadvertently, we were probably right in on its den. There are probably mm -hmm. pups there. So it was it was very perturbed. So, um, but it wouldn't, you know, it didn't lunge at us or anything like that. It was just a, it's extremely perturbed wolf, giving pure barks, just like a German Shepherd. So we, we picked up our, our trap and backed off and that, that was it. it. It stayed where it was. And, and there was an early experience uh, at a, a former old logging camp. And I was a student of Doug Kimlock's where we had a pack under observation. And there, the wolves, we were well back from them, but the wolves came and investigated and started to bark. And then gradually went back to where they came from, but the barking changed to bark howl and then just howling. Barking is a sign of extreme agitation in wolves. It's, uh, it's agitation. It's uh, really agonistic behavior, which is fight or flight, it's a, it's a dilemma. Humans have it almost all. Mammals have agonistic behavior, aggression and fear at the same time competing in the animal. Hmm. So that's the only experience that ever we ever had that was in the least bit uh, concerning for our welfare. And, and all the wolf biologists we know, nobody has ever thought of carrying firearms or anything like that. Protection. Mm -hmm. It's well, not I think, a problem. I think a lot of our attitudes towards animals are, are culturally based, and um, it depends what you're being fed. I met John at 17, so um, I was being fed these stories about wolves don't don't hurt you; they're they're, they're completely harmless. And I haven't read Farley I guess Farley book wasn't out yet. But um, so I completely believed him in this. And when when we got married, and I was 20, and I had these experiences. It was unconscionable to think that they would attack. I just accepted them as part of the, the wilderness atmosphere. The, the, the trees were there, the rocks were there, the wolves were there, even bears were there. Um, I didn't do, even have any fear of black bears. Maybe it was a naive situation, but um, I've, it still remained with me. We've worked with a lot of areas where there have been black bears, grizzly bears, and even being on the far north with, with polar bears, I guess you just have to use a bit of common sense and make sure that you have a team camp and uh, not put yourself into harm's way. They're not dangerous. Well, we even tried to feed our daughters to them. <laughs> they wouldn't even take them. They smelled too badly. They did, they did take their pajamas, though, when we were drawing, drying them out on the guy, guy lines. And... Uh, one one morning we woke up and Jenny's pajamas were nowhere to be found. We mm. came back to the same place about a month later, and there they were, all ripped up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember Pimlot talked about shared that similar thing when he was when he was keeping some of the pups that he had at the north end of Potter Creek, and they wandered up to Teepee Lake to Camp Erwan and were stealing bathing suits and towels off the lines of the yes, right, children yes, yeah. camp. You know? yeah. So yeah. that's a <laughs> You know, that's uh, an interesting, uh, interesting characteristic. One of the things I really loved was the number of times you talked about when you were going somewhere where you knew a pack was and howling, and they would come and check you out. So I'm interested in learning more about the kinds of work that you did around wolf howling. Yeah, well, that started in Algonquin, and it started partly because... Uh, Doug Pimlot wrote somewhere uh, that the future of the wolf depended on people finding interesting things about them and then starting to care about them. So it, it was a research tool, but then it became an interesting subject. So it was just gradually built up. But the, the interesting thing, Mary can speak a bit about the, the, um, our master's work and how this captive wolf we had in a and back uh, way back in the bush in the wildlife research area taught us some interesting stuff. Well, we had to have them far enough away from the research area that the noises around the area wouldn't instigate any howling. 
whether it was a siren going off or people honking the car or even just the other wolves howling. So we, we brought this wolf. His name was Big Gray. He uh, was with him for all of May and all of June. It was an old ranger cabin way back at Chit Lake. The pen was um, a ways back from the cabin and he would play howls from the cabin window to, to Big Gray and he didn't respond to them. Um, he was raised with some other wolves, some, uh, they were his siblings, and he didn't respond to them either. He didn't respond to John. People came up to visit John and he didn't respond to them. So when I came to join him after school was finished, he said, I, I don't know, I think my, my research is going down the drain and we'll have to find something else. So I howled that evening. I, I had had some contact with Big Gray. I'd gone in and rubbed his tummy and when we were feeding him and he was just like a dog, just like an Alsatian, just rolled over, put his legs up into the air and just loved to have his stomach uh, rubbed. And uh, that evening I, I, I howled and the wolf responded. Mm. After two months of complete silence from that wolf, he responded. So we went on the rest of the night. John would howl, the wolf was quiet. I would howl, the wolf responded. We played his pack mates and he was silent. We played strange wolves to him. He was silent. I howled. He howled back. So the whole night was spent with one of us howling or the, the tapes being played to him. And he always responded to me. So then the next night we decided that it must have been something in the howl that, that triggered this. So John can get up to middle C and I, I can get down to middle C. And we tried that. A steady note. Steady oh, note. Okay. And the wolf responded to my middle C, but not to John's. And we tried that constantly throughout the night. He always responded to my voice and never to John's. So then we did a tape recording of my howl. When I in person howled, he responded. Then we played the tape recording to him. He didn't respond. We were always out of sight. He, he didn't see us. We were in no, the cabin. We were in the cabin playing it out of the window, the back window. He always responded to my live howl, but not my recorded howl. So then we, we did this throughout the summer and got about 250 recordings from Big Gray. That winter, we put it through a spectrograph. That's a piece of equipment that measures the right the fundamental frequency and measures harmonics. It's a graph of the yeah. sound. Ah, okay, of the graph yeah. of the sound. Okay. Yes. But yeah. it separates out the the fundamental frequencies, the one you hear, and the, the harmonics. Harmonics are are mathematically related. So if middle C is two hundred and fifty cycles per second, that's not quite right, but it's close. The first harmonic is five hundred. The next one is 750 and so right. on. So, okay. And regular harmonic overtones above the fundamental is what makes something uh, subjectively to us music versus noise where those overtones are not mathematically related. But they, every, every musical instrument has a different harmonic. So you can tell a piano from a guitar right. if you have that. So um, we realized that my tape towel had a stronger second harmonic than the first. And my live howl had a stronger first harmonic than the second. Now the wolf was able to differentiate between the two. We couldn't tell the difference, but he could. So this is really quite an adaptive process within a wolf. It's territorially quite an advantage to them to be able to recognize who's who's part of their pack, who isn't part of their pack, who's an intruder. Even, even with songbirds, uh, a white, white throat sparrow can tell its neighbor from an intruder that's come into the territory. So, so every wolf has its own harmonic overtones. If it, if it howls up, uh, up the uh, frequencies, the harmonics will change according to its uh, nasal cavities and whatnot uh, as it goes up. So every wolf has its own harmonic signature, and they have a vast ability at identifying harmonic overtones. Well, with Big Gray, he had five strong harmonic overtones. Now, Dagwood and Scamp, um, Dagwood had 
two to four strong harmonic overtones, and Scant had none. Hmm. So each wolf is, is aware of this and can, can filter it out in their ears. Whereas for us, uh, when we hear a wolf howl, we can sometimes hear maybe a wolf that's got a more gravelly voice and a more shrill voice. But I would defy an awful lot of people being able to say, well, that's this wolf, number 304 or 95 or 302. We, we don't have quite that range of, of uh, deciphering these calls that, that uh, the wolves do. They specifically have been able to come down through the generations and pass that down and use it adaptively within their, within their path. Hmm. So does that mean, if I'm if I'm understanding correctly, then that means that in you know whatever their pack is, whether it's a they were born there or whether they just joined it mm -hmm. later, they would learn each other's voices so that when yeah. either one of you would be out there or even you know local people <laughs> wandering off into right. the bush and howling, they would not only you know potentially respond but that's why they might get curious because they might say oh that i've never heard that one before i better go see what that is exactly uh, so that that actually ritualized it's, it's like ritualized aggression they express it in their howl so a wolf that howls at the whether it's in the other pack's territory or in the periphery of it, it it's um like a flag it's notifying the the other wolf that it's coming into the area into the territory and the territory holder can either go in and challenge it or it can walk away from the situation and we found that in most situations in Algonquin they wouldn't necessarily challenge it they would they would walk away from it and we didn't have as much wolf killing wolf we didn't have as much aggression being shown in that in our pack I think we only had four wolves killed in the 10 years of our study. Whereas in the Yellowstone work, they've had 25 wolves killed by other wolves. Oh, interesting. Well, with all this talk of wolf howling, I think it's time for a musical interlude. This is from Dan Gibson Solitude's Legend of the Wolf, and it's called The Beckoning Sea.
So where did your research interests take you both next? Well, then we took, after we finished the Algonquin work in the uh, year 2000, that was at the end of all the conflict with the Ontario government and uh, the success in getting the protection zone, uh, we decided to resign from the University of Waterloo and, and uh, wanted to do some more wolf research. But uh, so we picked up research in Yellowstone National Park, picked up the wolf research again. So we'd done years of population research in Algonquin after the howling initiation stuff. And we picked it up again because it was inexpensive. We weren't able to get research grants and grad students anymore. Um, so I was retired, but at Yellowstone, we had met the research, the, the chap in charge of the research program there, Doug Smith, and he welcomed us to come down there and on the northern range in Yellowstone, you see the wolves every day. He had all the difficulty that we had in Algonquin of putting radio collars on and all the aerial tracking and all that. We rolled in on all his work with our sound equipment and can see what exactly the situation, what was triggering howls, what was the consequence of howls. And uh, that, that's what we've pursued on and off over the last 20 years, writing a few papers mm. about the triggers and consequences of howling. And there have been a number of, of major questions in communication uh, theory and whatnot that, uh, um, that uh, we've got, tried to get at. And one is uh, whether animal vocalizations are largely part of trying to express specific information or are they really part of emotion and, and internal drives that occur without any intent to send information to another animal, but it does send information to the other animal and it's uh, interpreted. So natural selection will see it as, as significant. There are questions like that, whether other animals besides humans have a high level of intent to send specific information that researchers in animal communication are interested in. So our results, I think, are generating some interest in that sort of question. Well, we've seen that it's really quite emotional. We analyzed the house of a chap called Rick McIntyre, who um, is an interpreter in, in Yellowstone. And he had about 20 years of uh, observations at that time. We statistically analyzed 10 years of his data. And we found out that throughout the year, they basically howl in a U-shaped curve uh, at strongest in February during the mating season. Then after the mating season in March, April, it starts to decline very, very sharply, very steeply, the, the steep decline in the howling. And then in May, June, and July, it, it, uh, is, there's less howling, but there's more within the pack howling. The wolves then are trying to keep in touch with their own pack, and they're not traveling to other parts of their, their range. They're hunting, but their primary fun function is to take care of the pups and bring them food. And so they, they basically howl within the pack situation. And then in uh, August, September, October, November, that the howling begins to gradually come up again, up the steep curve. In November and December, it's near its peak in January. And so then you get through that other curve again. When we analyzed this and got that, we looked at other trends that the other researchers were finding. And we found that this pattern of howling also mirrored trends in the seasonal reproductive hormones of the wolves. Uh, the wolves had more testosterone at that time. Uh, the male wolves and the females had more estradiol. So these are the reproductive hormones that they're getting. And almost identical to this hormonal state and to the howling state was the aggressive encounters within the pack. There were far more aggressive encounters in February because wolves would be looking for mates. So it was uh, a triad of things that were related to behaviors, howling, uh, reproduction, and behavior. That is really, really fascinating. 
So in episode 43, I shared in quite a lot of detail the challenges that you both went through in getting that initial three-township ban put in place. Can you share a little bit about what happened after that? Uh -huh. Yeah. So if we picked up from where you left off in episode 43, that was about in 1998, summarizing the wolf issue at that point, we had... Um, six or seven years of strong data that showed that the wolf population was going to hell. It was being overexploited. The Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters and the Ontario Trappist Association, which was the clientele, the main clientele of the Ministry of Natural Resources, were dead against the protection zone. So the government had a problem. They very much wanted to cater to those two agencies. And yet they had the World Wildlife Fund, the Algonquin Wildlands League, Earth Roots, uh, uh, Ontario Nature on, on the other side. So eventually we came up with a solution, and that was to challenge the government to, to co-sponsor with the World Wildlife Fund a, a conference, a major conference, uh, 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 where the wolf data would be displayed, put on display, and analyzed by uh, biologists from all over North America and conclusions drawn about the viability of the wolf population or not and, and what should be done. And there was a vehicle for such a thing, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which is the granddaddy of all conservation organizations in the world, had a working group uh, which uh, sponsored workshops with species in trouble or major conflict situations where uh, all the data was put, was put into a computer program called Population Habitat and Viability Analysis, the big program called Vortex. You dumped all your information in there, birth rates, death rates, age specifics, so on, causes of mortality, uh, prey population densities, changes in numbers, everything you can think of. And it spits out a, a, a number of probabilities of, of persistence of the population. So. Uh, the ministry agreed to that, and it was held at, at Dorset, the uh, Ministry of Natural Resources uh, Conference Center, in February 2000, 2000. There were 70, there were interest groups as well as biologists there. And I guess we put ourselves on scientific trial. <laughs> we were confident of our results because many of our grad students had already published the roughly scientific papers on our results. But we went through the process. And the conclusions that the computer program spat out were that uh, this population is, a, is, a, is a, not sustainable. It's, it's not going to persist. And this level of killing is not being made back by the reproductive rates. And, and, and there was trouble with it. Well, uh, that's the point we decided uh, that we'd had enough. Uh, and then it was up to government. They really had no choice but to do something. It took a few years. It took a change in government. And uh, then a minister named David Ramsey became Minister of Natural Resources, and he had full intention to do something about this. So he did. He put the ban on all around the park that we wanted. Well, I think it was more than just um, a change in government. It also took us leaving the scene and letting some of the other groups then pull the troika along in, in this uh, quagmire of uh, wolf controversy. Monty Hummel did a, a tremendous job. We can't, he's, he was the CEO of World Wildlife Fund at the time. They put a lot of money into our work. And he hammered the government on putting um, this protection zone on around Algonquin Park. And so did um, Wildlands League and so did Earthroots. And with us out of the way, I think the government could accept that they were wrong in um, denying our data. Even during the PHBA, I had one of the biologists say, well, your wolves never did kill moose. And I said, what do you mean they didn't kill moose? Um, we went in with Mike Wilton, who's your, your, wolf, your uh, moose biologist. There was the moose all stirring apart and you can tell whether the moose has been killed 
or has died a natural death, if it's been killed by wolves, um, its rumen is strewn all around the place. It's still hot. And so when they get at the stomach, which is one of the softest parts in the, in the, the carcass that they can get to, they can strew, strew all that grass and, and foliage all around. And if it's um, dropped down on its haunches because it froze to death and starved to death, it's a frozen specimen. And uh, usually the rumen is a, is a frozen football. The, the wolves don't touch it. So um, I, I said to this chap, you should have been around when we were walking into some of these girls and we're seeing that the wolves of Algonquin actually did take down moose. Hmm. I imagine David Ramsey uh, putting the ban on. We flew down to Toronto a year later uh, to thank him because uh, there was a lot of courage he showed to do that. And we had a signed copy of our book, Wolf Country, to give him, and so we presented it to him. And he said, well, thanks very much. But you know, when I became minister, I knew this was an issue I was going to have to handle. So I went out and bought your book and read it. And for us, wow. that was a, huge, a huge endorsement. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. A politician would, would read the book and ponder what the best course of action yeah, would be. That's great. Yeah. And I guess we're... We're happy with the work that other people have done since then. You interviewed John Benson. People like him have pushed along, and Earth Roots has continued the pressures on, and the actual the protection area in southern Ontario has increased. And the Clarny uh, Provincial Park and, and a few others. There's more that needs to be done, but uh, through these people's work since we left, uh, means the ban is still is still there 18 years later, and we're pretty happy about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's needed. You know, the years ago, there were uh, researchers that looked at uh, basically the large parts parts in the world and and the status of large carnivores in those parts and whether they were doing the job. And they concluded that the large parts of the world are not going to preserve the large carnivores of the world. That's the African lions, the spotted hyenas, the African hunting dogs, and so on, and wolves, unless uh, if they could just become isolated little places and they need buffer areas around them, they need connection between protected areas. And they put forward the sort of an image that uh, in a broad scale landscape, you need areas that are population sources, and there may be other places you've got to have control and to population sink, but you manage on a grand landscape level. This has been tried and talked about in, in Yellowstone in the three states, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming is the, the ideal way of running things. Yellowstone will be a, a source area, and it hasn't made the political grade. Nobody has accepted this sort of large-scale view of uh, managing predators uh, on, a, on a wide landscape. Well, but we we set a precedent yeah. that we hope gets gets uh, followed in other places. There, there was there was a, a setting up of Y to Y to go from Yellowstone to Yukon, and um, somehow that's got stalemated. Mm -hmm. uh, really, <laughs> I guess BC stalemating it to a great extent because uh, we're not doing a great job of protecting our wolves in this province. We see what's happening to them. Uh, I guess it's, uh, I think it's 1,500 wolves have been killed since 2015. By the government. By the government Area in order to protect um, the endangered caribou species. But it's not the wolves that are doing them in. It's the over-harvesting of the, the forests that are doing right. them in. And it's climate change. You know, with climate change in the picture now, we can do everything. We can take every predator out of the picture, and those those caribou won't come back because of the the climate. That's right. That's right. And it's all interconnected in in ways that we never imagined, let alone really know how to deal with. So, in that topic, I was surprised to read in the 2018 recovery series report that there was some attempt to think about how to enable some kind of travel corridor for the Algonquin wolf, the ones that are 
sort of the least hybridized of all of them so that they because they had they're a unique mm-hmm. type of wolf now that's in Algonquin and if there and there may be some connections to Killarney and maybe to Quebec and is there a way of doing that what's your sense on on how realistic that at least in Ontario it, it really is well we we pushed for that in our book wolf country um years ago um and we mentioned the potential for corridors from Algonquin to Killarney, even that specifically. But uh, if you're if you're doing it for um, snapping turtle habitat or pine marten habitat or something like that, maybe you've got a chance. It's difficult with a wide-ranging species. Your corridor would have to be pretty extensive, and it would have to be no hunting in it, uh, no trapping in it, and uh, the forest would have to be maintained in closed forest situations or something like that. It's it's hard to, in principle, it's a really good idea. To establish it is is uh, difficult. I, I, I don't know what to really make it. The corridor idea. Well, um, you have to have sufficient overpasses. Uh, we were in Calgary recently and um, they have overpasses across the, the highway, the Trans-Canada Highway. And they are used, but you've got a long section between it, miles between it. And how diligent are the animals going to be in, in finding these places? Because the whole area is fenced. Mm-hmm. And then you get a, an overpass, and then maybe 10 miles down the road, 20 miles down the road, you'll find another overpass. And is that enough overpasses for them? It, it, when we went down and talked to David Ramsey, uh, we gave him a proposal. We said, okay, now you've buffered uh, Algonquin Park. Your next job is to buffer all the large parks uh, in Ontario. And yes, true, it's a different species. It's gray, gray wolves, but uh, with exploitation in the north growing it in landscape change at the rate it is in the north. It's only going to be a matter of time where there's problems there. So buffer Quetico, Lake Superior, Provincial Parks, Polar Bear National Parks, Puckasaw. And, and we produced a map for them and said, you do this and you will raise the amount of protected wolf range in Ontario from 4%, which is what it was with Algonquin. It's a little bit more now with the protection zone around it, to 15%. That leaves the people who want to exploit wolves 85%. That should right. be politically doable. And uh, well, he agreed it was it was doable, but he said I had to take it one step at a time. And as governments go, ministers change portfolios and he, he got changed and it never... 20 anywhere. years later, it's not, not there. Yeah. But A to A and Y to Y, and then, then we were looking at O to O, the, the whole Okanagan system. Um, mm-hmm. Even... Uh, None of these these ideas seem to to have really worked sufficiently. When we go down to Yellowstone, we we come through this highway. It's six six lanes of traffic. Mm-hmm. How can a, a wolf oh, cross across that? And uh, no, they can't. Um, they can't see beyond the, the the barrier that's there between the two sides of the highway. One going east, one going west, and um, and then, then you have the the human dilemma in it all because it's a it's a huge battlefield between people who are culturally anti wolf and people who are pro wolf. And you have these battles, the battles raging in Yellowstone right now. Twenty five wolves have been killed from the park, and uh, we saw this coming. We've seen it coming for quite a few years now as uh, people were poaching wolves during the years that we were going down there. We haven't been there for the past two because of COVID. Mm. But this past winter, 25 wolves, park wolves were killed. Yeah. And people were gunning them as they came out of the park. So, well, so and luring them as well, right? Yes, yes. It's the same situation as Algonquin. And the elk uh, there have started a tradition of moving out of the park uh, into lower elevations in the winter. 
and uh, the wolves were fighting, were, were following them. And we, we had some of the first telemetry that showed by God wolves from the other side of Yellowstone. Here they are out in this uh, ranch land where they're getting in trouble. So it's a boundary protection situation there that's uh, really badly needed. And we offered to go testify on the success in Algonquin if, uh, if they wanted to. I should say that when the protection zone was, was put on, then the ministry started to do some work after the protection zone was on. Was on. And, and they showed quite clearly within three years that population increased from, well, it was 1.4 per 100, 100 square kilometers up back up to three. That's what it ought to be. That's what it was. When we started our research, that was what it was in Kimlot's day. Slightly more than that. Uh, so the population recovered, and the other end of it that was a, a big success was the genetic effect. Mm -hmm. We were so shocked when we realized through Brad White's work and others that uh, uh, coyote genes were infiltrating that population, uh, and mm -hmm. that was going to be the kiss of death, just like it was the red wolf in North Carolina with the reintroduction program there. The work that was followed up showed that the, the genetic infiltration of coyote genes stopped a great deal once the killing was, was stopped. And the social behavior was becoming more wolf-like and more natural than it was when the killing was basically fragmenting the social structure of the population. Right. Things right. like dispersal rates. Dispersal rates in a non-exploited population ought to be about 20, 25% would be young animals that disperse that figure, well, I'm not going to be able to mate, mate in my natal pack or go somewhere else. In a, a shot up population, it, that goes up to uh, oh, 70, 80%. There's, there's, they can land out there, so out they go. So pack sizes become smaller, and, and then you start to wonder about something about the capacity for wolves to be expressing group selection rather than just individual natural selection. Group selection, of course, is survival of the best, best fit pack. And you know, it operates in the large social carnivores for sure, as well as natural selection. You're out for the good of yourself. You're also out for the good of the pack. But you, if you, uh, um, you have excess mortality in the pack, then the capacity for the fact I, I think there's an erosion of the social cooperation that's an integral part of group selection so you're you're doing away with the social system mm -hmm. wolf wolf conservation is not just a numbers game it's it's maintaining the integrity of the of the social system mm -hmm. so in hindsight you know, after 60 years of intensive evaluation and study, what's your sense of, of what, the, what the future holds for wolf populations in, in Algonquin and Yellowstone and in BC and everywhere? Well, if humans butt out, <laughs> it'll be pretty good. It should be pretty good. They should recover. But it depends on how we butt out. I guess the hope for wolves is in the bigger package of the, the wolf and the idea of biodiversity uh, and completeness of ecosystem. The wolves are an umbrella species. If you can protect their, their viable population to protect a lot of species under the umbrella, they're ecological dominance, so they stir the pot and increase biodiversity that way. And perhaps you've heard about the efforts. Well, we've got an international obligation in Canada, as other developed nations of the world have, of uh, protecting biodiversity and addressing of that, that it's not just climate change that's threatening us, it's climate change and biodiversity, and, and they are linked. Uh, so the wolf is, the, the wolf's future, it, it ties closely to the need for more protective land, its, it's future looks better. There is a momentum now uh, or the idea of half or nature needs half. If we don't leave half the world to operate naturally without a massive intervention by humans and resource extraction and so on, 
we are going to mess up the biodiversity and we could screw up the biosphere. There's mm -hmm. a lot if we can our species. So if nature needs half, efforts to increase the national park holdings, say in Canada, from 17% to 30% by 2030, 30 by 30, that's unrealistic, but they're shooting for it. 50 by 50, could we get to 50%? Then uh, the wolf has a future in that bigger framework. Our focus has largely been uh, protection of wildlands and the wolf has been uh, a vehicle to push that, push that objective. And I think that's the broad picture we need to think of the wolf in. It's far more imperative that way than just thinking of it as an individual species. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can really separate the wolf from separating it from humans. I think we're into a very tumultuous time now as human beings. Um, it, we have so many value-laden perceptions, conceptions, attitudes, and I think you're seeing it in the States with um, a country divided. I think we're starting to see it here in Canada with a country divided. We've, we've gone past civilized dialogue. If that was the way that we were going to be separating ourselves from the wild. Actually, I think the wild is far more civilized than we are. We're going to have to get back to looking and thinking what's good for the world as a whole. And it's going to take some pretty tough questions in the next little while. We'll have to look far deeper into our, our own souls and our own hearts in the next next decade, I think, in order to try and pull the threads that we have in this, this fabulous thing that we call our world and an ecosystem and try to make it whole again. Mm -hmm. I, I really think we're into, into a very precipitous time right now. And and you said it in wolf country. It's not, it isn't just a function of, well, let's just teach you more. It's... No. It's 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 the self-reflection of looking inside and saying, okay, why do I have this belief that wolves are evil or that they're going to ruin my livestock? Well, there's there's unfortunately a, a cultural divide operating in British Columbia now. Pacific Wild, which is a conservation organization, has raised a petition with more than half a million people signing it, opposed to the government shooting wolves from the air, opposed to that control program. And what happened is the Pacific Wild just a few weeks ago lost a legal case on that. Uh, they took the government to court. The government has now declared it's into five more years of, of this wolf killing that has killed over 1,500 wolves in the last few years. So how, how do we have a, a divide like that? Is it a hinterland hate in northern areas compared to an urban, I don't know, uh, well, a lot of indifference, but... Uh, somewhat more accepting of a predator like a wolf and and uh, how do you saw off the, these differences in viewpoints that are definitely regional and definitely political mm -hmm. in, in the united states is becoming very clear with what's happening in the in montana that there's a a, a divide policy divide between the the two federal parties that's just absolutely marked yeah very often yeah yeah. So we're splitting apart more than coming together to find solutions. At the yeah. same time, it has been encouraging. When um, we first got married in the 60s, people didn't wear wolf t-shirts. People didn't read wolf books. There weren't wolf drawings. It's great to see that this change has come. It's been a complete flip to people almost loving the wolf to death. Somehow, we have to be able to have a dialogue with the other side. And gosh, we've sat at so many meetings and, and tried to have this dialogue. And uh, you just have to have an open mind. And I can see that we have to have some wolf control in areas where you've got a renegade wolf taking someone's cattle or sheep, and maybe in, in areas that have the industry of, of, of cattle raising and uh, and providing these resources for, for humanity. But then we have to have this larger umbrella of protection 
for the areas that we call national parks that species can exist and can coexist. You know, they've, they've coexisted for millions of, of years, for millennia. And yet it's only when we've started tinkering with the mechanics of it all now of deciding which species is going to be around and which isn't going to be around that uh, we're, we're upsetting the saddle cart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting because the wolf can be of a benefit right now within Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. Outside of the park, they've got chronic wasting disease in the ungulates. It affects deer, white-tailed deer, and um, mule deer, and elk. And uh, it's, it's really getting to be quite, quite a problem right now. Well, wolves are the perfect solution for it. Because they spot animals that have uh, an impediment of some sort, whether it's disease or an injury, and those are the animals they go for. So chronic wasting disease weakens an animal, and if you had the wolf in there, you could cull out those animals that have it. Wolves are immune to chronic wasting disease. So it's going to be interesting to see how the governments fit this one into um, the, the political bargaining table. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're absolutely right. It is going to be a bargaining table. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. This has been a marvelous conversation and I, I hope it's been useful for you as well. Well, thank you, Gay. We've enjoyed, we've enjoyed doing it. Yeah. It's, it's taken us back to a lot of happy years. We had uh, a lot of happy years in Algonquin Park. You made us reminisce um, the last few days and, and uh, bringing back a lot of these rem- memories, a lot of happy memories. Yeah. Well, as I say, I, I loved wolf country. I very much appreciate your contribution to helping us all get better informed about what this is all about. Even though I know it's been a long time, it's almost like one of those books that you need to reread <laughs> every <laughs> five years <laughs> to remember why this matters. <laughs> enjoyed rereading it too. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, thank all you for right. all you're yes. doing, Gay, because I think this is very important, getting getting to people and uh, getting into people's homes and, and having them listen to different opinions that they may have had. Yeah, and I hope this makes a contribution in some small way. We'll see. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with John and Mary Thaberge. But before I go, one late breaking news item, which I saw in mid-August that adds some really interesting perspectives. In a paper recently published in the journal Bioscience, a study has suggested that the establishment of a regional rewilding network involving restoring and protecting beaver and wolf populations and reducing cattle grazing across large tracts of land in the western United States could help capture carbon, boost water supplies, and protect against flooding and drought. Both animals are keystone species that help shape the landscapes they live in. Bringing them back in a big way could help forests and streams struggling to adapt to rising temperatures and aridification. As quoted in a recent article, an expanded wolf population would thin out herds of elk and deer that hamper forest regeneration when they browse on tender young trees. Beavers would modulate flows along streams and rivers by building dams that create areas of spongy soil that absorb water during heavy rains and release it back slowly in drier times. This type of restoring of wolves and beavers would also provide umbrella protection for many threatened and endangered species that share the same habitat, including amphibians, crustaceans, fish, mammals, reptiles, and snails, as well as flowering plants. All of the areas mapped by the plan are public lands managed by the United States federal agencies, and the lead researcher, Bill Ripple, an ecologist at Oregon State University, noted that President Biden could take action on parts of it, with or without Congress. All of this is a really interesting development, and as Max Rosberg, chairman of the European Wilderness Society, has said, it is the fundamental flaw in our thinking that we think we know better than nature, We believe we have the knowledge, the skills as ecosystem engineers to modify nature to a degree that after our modification, nature is in a better state. If anything, 
we should be humble enough to realize that we are not smarter than nature. Nature has a self-healing power far exceeding our technology and engineering. The wolf doesn't need our help. The beaver doesn't need our help. It's humans who need help to live with the species. Amen. One more reminder. All of my books, as well as those by my friend and fellow Algonquin Park human historian, Roderick Mackay, are all available through the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores and at Amazon. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, on the Picks and Vids page, I've posted selections from my library of historical photographs of people and places that I talk about in these podcasts, which I hope you will find of interest. As I mentioned before, I also strongly encourage everyone to lend their financial support to the Wildlife Research Station, whose information can be found on their website, www.algonquinwrs.ca, and consider buying an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt, coffee cup, or other merch by clicking on the Gifts and Gears buttons on my website. If you have any ideas of topics that you think would be fun to explore or just want to share your sentiments about my podcasting efforts, please feel free to email me at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. <laughs>